This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present a conversation with 8th District Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier, who is running for re-election in November. Congresswoman Schreier is the first Democrat to hold this seat in the history of the district, in large part because the 8th District was drawn to be a Republican stronghold. So this election represents a real opportunity to keep a great representative. This could also tip the balance of power with the state delegation. In short, the stakes are very high, and this podcast is an opportunity to get to know Dr. Schreier and to get excited about doing what it takes to get her up and over the finish line in November. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Thursday, August 27th. And before we start, I will just let you know that we had some technical difficulties, which is why tonight's town hall is so short. We only had 30 minutes to begin with, and Dr. Schreier had trouble getting into the Zoom call, which hey, happens to the best of us. It's happened to me not infrequently. Uh, but we did still manage to get some great stuff, so we are very happy to present our conversation. So tonight, as you know, we are going to be speaking with Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier. She represents Washington's 8th Congressional District, my home district, which includes much of King, Pierce, Kittitas, and Chelan counties, and portions of Douglas County. Before we start, I will emphatically say that we absolutely need to keep Dr. Schreier as our 8th District Member of Congress. She is the first Democrat to occupy the seat in the history of the district. Uh, And this is largely because it was drawn to be a Republican district. But we all know that when we do the work, we will win. So we also know that she is a tremendous member of our state's delegation, and we are so happy to have her with us here tonight. Hello, I'm here, Stefan. I apologize for keeping you all waiting. You look marvelous. Happy belated birthday. Oh, gosh, thank you. We have the same birthday, don't we? We are. We were born 10 days apart, if you can believe. Oh, happy belated birthday to you. And to you. And I understand that uh, for your birthday, you got to fly back to D.C. in the middle of August recess to help save the Postal Service. I did. Well, actually, for my birthday, I got to fly home from D.C. Okay. So that part part was great because I got to come and and be with family. Um, But I somebody somebody sent me a text and said, I can't believe you were flying on your birthday. And I just said, you know what? If I can do my part to save the post office so that all of our votes are counted and we can then rescue the country, then that is the best birthday present ever. So I... It was my honor and duty to go. I am in complete agreement. Uh, The House did pass the Delivering for America Act, uh, which would reverse the recent changes that have slowed down the service. What are your thoughts on the passage of that bill? Well, it got 26 Republican votes. And I just want to step back for a second and say that the Postal Service is the most popular government agency there is. And that in particular for my constituents, like rural America, rural 8th District, they need to get their medications on time. We have veterans waiting waiting for their medications. People don't want to leave their houses to go to a pharmacy, the doctor. They're depending on the mail service. And so this should not be a political issue. This should be, this is our mail service. It's not supposed to be a business. It is a service. And, um, you know, to try to run it like a business seems like you're kind of missing the spirit of the constitutional, you know, uh, uh, duty to deliver mail to the people of the United States. 
Yeah, 100% agreed. And of course, there is the issue of the election. And we know that the GOP Senate is not going to take up this bill. Um, And I'm curious your thoughts on what Democrats can be doing further here. So Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said that he is going to suspend making changes. But on Monday at at a hearing in the House Oversight Committee, he said he will not be putting the sorting machines back. And you have said in a tweet that you you say we have to ensure that the damage is undone. So what else can the Democrats do here to apply pressure? Well, first of all, I would not say for sure that the Senate won't take this up. The Senate may take this up on their own with public pressure, or the Senate may take this up if it is put into the next COVID rescue package that becomes a must-pass bill. And then there are, you know, there is support for the post office that would make it through that would reverse all of these changes. But I then we have to have this sort of dose of reality. Like, let's say it doesn't happen. Let's say all of this destruction happens. I really feel like when we're talking about the election, and this is aside from getting medications to people, making sure people get their their letters on time, their checks on time, businesses, you know, when it comes to this election and having your vote count, we're going to have to prepare Americans, whatever state they're in. In our state, we have drop boxes, or you can mail it in early and make sure you give it lots of time to get in by. In other states where it has to arrive by election day, not just be postmarked by then, they're going to have to have a different set of instructions. And that might be taking it physically to a polling place to drop it off. So we are going to have to figure it out. We are a smart country. We're a scrappy country. We're not going to let anything stand in the way of having these things work. And we will get those ballots counted. It's a public awareness campaign, I think, is, is what it, you're saying. and It really is. And I know that you went to visit the Issaquah Post Office. I think people would be very interested to learn what you discovered when you were there. So in the Issaquah Post Office and for my own um, delivery person, I got a little bit of insight. But where I really got information was a visit with a postal worker in Wenatchee uh, just yesterday. Um, he has worked for the Postal Service for uh, over 15 years and was really describing to me what was going on there. Because as you know, uh, I believe 40 machines were removed in Washington State. I've written a letter with Pramila Jayapal and others. Um, But he said that what this would mean is that if you were in Wenatchee and you mailed a letter to down the street in Wenatchee, right now that takes a day, two days, it gets there fast. This would remove the processing machine and divert all of that mail to Spokane, which adds at least another day, and that they would then be shooting for the, not in the two to five day window, they'd be shooting to maybe get there at five, and they're allowed to have a 10% error rate, which means it could be later. And that's just such an unnecessary thing to do. It, you know, you lose jobs in Wenatchee, you don't get people their medications on time, and you're doing this at a time when there's un- going to be unprecedented, unprecedented demand on our postal service. It reeks of politicization. That is that is the exact right word. And, you know, I, I will mention that Forbes did some reporting based on something that KUOW had reported that some machines in Puget Sound and in Wenatchee had been brought back online. Is that anything that you can confirm? So, you know, all they had done with the one in Wenatchee, because this got turned around the very next day, they had uh, removed the wiring. And so all it really took, like, because this this commitment from DeJoy happened the day after they were going to take it offline, all they had really done was disconnect it, and they just had to reattach. So they're back in business in Wenatchee. 
but you know, whatever change, like whatever we do should be evidence-based. And, and there's just no good evidence to point to why you would do this. Why would you take away a machine that automates the sorting of mail that would then require more human beings to do that job? Um, I even asked about overtime because, and I don't want to dwell too much on this question with our limited time, but, you know, I usually think, oh, overtime, that's a waste, that's wasteful use of dollars. But it turns out that the Postal Service uses overtime purposely to save money because it is cheaper to pay overtime than to hire adequate staff. And so you can't have it both ways. You can't not hire people and cut overtime. We got to get mail to people. As you say, politicization. Um, and you also mentioned uh, operating in an evidence-based way. Uh, and so that leads me to my next question about the, the COVID response at the federal level. The Trump administration has manifestly done a horrific job of handling this pandemic. Over 180,000 Americans are dead. You've been very outspoken here. So as a physician, what should we be doing right now? Okay. So first, let me say this is a very challenging illness and that it would be hard for anyone to really perfectly manage. Like it is a very, I just wanna say, it is a very tricky thing to manage a disease that is spread by asymptomatic people and that has such a variable response. But the thing to do um, was really to ramp up as quickly as possible testing. And what we need at this moment, at this moment, the PCR testing is probably not really the way to go. Um, it requires a lot of time to get that test done. And by the time you get the test back, they've already been spreading this disease for three, four, five days. And so what we really need now is a cheap $1 spit on a piece of paper, check your own saliva at home antigen test it should have lower sensitivity because you don't want to pick up the slightest trace of virus. You want to know when people are spreading this thing, when they're shedding large amounts and you decide that day, oh, look, I'm positive. I'm not going to work for the next five days. You don't go. And that is how we, we break the transmission. And, you know, the, all of the other stuff is like, instead of the scalpel, it's like the ax, right? All the other stuff is stay home. Don't mingle with people. Don't do unnecessary things. Don't give this virus a chance to hop from person to person. And that is how we can get our kids back into school safely. And just point of clarification, can you tell us what a PCR test is? Um, yeah, PCR test is the one that looks for uh, either DNA or RNA from the virus. And so that is the gold standard. Like That's the test that we're using now where you swab up the nose. It takes 24 hours, but sometimes up to two weeks to get those results back. And, you know, they have very high accuracy, but the speed, you know, is really like trying to fight this disease with a hand tied, tied behind your back and the cost, you know, there's a lot of limitations there. And sometimes it's better to have high frequency, high frequency, lesser uh, accuracy than it is to have high accuracy, but the inability to test large numbers of people. So it's basically, we would do what they do at the White House, you know, every day, the president gets tested. Um, and, you know, if you miss it one day, you'll catch it the next. And that's kind of what we would do with the whole population. You know, I really regret that we have to sprint through these questions. Uh, there were so many that we received from people, and I certainly have my share of questions for you. Uh, I would like to ask about your plans for a second term. And I'd love to frame it this way. So let's say, ideally, and this is me vigorously crossing my fingers, the Dems keep the House, they flip the Senate, they take the White House. How do we begin to undo the damage of a Trump presidency? 
So the first thing I would do, um, you know, Trump came in and basically undid every executive order that Obama put in. And I think we go through each one of those and we, you know, if it doesn't make sense, we reverse those. And then right away, we got to get to work simultaneously on so many critical issues. One of them, climate change. We need bold action immediately. Another one of them is shoring up our democracy so that it can't be abused again, to take away some of the power of the presidency and redistribute it and put in protections and guardrails to, to secure our democracy. Another one is healthcare and of course, fighting COVID. And we got to do all of those at the same time. And when you uh, talk about securing democracy, I, I believe you're referring to what is laid out in HR1. This is the democracy reform package that passed directly after you were elected in 2018, expanding voting rights, limiting gerrymandering, strengthening ethics rules, uh, limiting the influence of private donor money. Uh, would you make that a priority in 2021? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that is critical. If there's one thing we've learned is that we need to put up guardrails because we've seen what can happen. What can happen that we cannot guard against if you have a um, an administration with instincts that lean towards authoritarianism we don't have enough breaks, and we need to make sure that we balance our powers better. We've seen that on display in the RNC uh, with the usage of the White House grounds. Um, you know, this is I don't want to get sidetracked too far down this road, but I would like to get your thoughts on this. A lot of norms have just been smashed by this rogue executive. And we're talking about guardrails. Um, I think, you know, we both know that he's been allowed to do a lot of this because of a, a complicit GOP Senate. Um, what sorts of norms would you like to see, just briefly, codified into law to prevent the sorts of things that Trump has gotten away with? Right. So I think you could start with removing the possibility of financial conflicts of interest. So must release tax returns, must show all investments, must divest and put in a blind trust. I think that's a really important one. Um, and frankly, I think that would have answered a lot of questions about conflicts of interest. We there. may not be here right now if those had gotten gotten into the public hands. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. I think you're right. Um, so I think I think that is one, and another one. The other ones are things like partisan gerrymandering that just make it so not all votes count. And frankly, if I had my druthers, I would like to see uh, an electoral system that simply mirrors the. Uh, the the one vote one person system so that it's not a winner take all in each state that we really have things that match up better but that's for states to decide. Let's talk briefly about your first term. It's a very busy first term. You managed to get in this year's budget appropriations extra funding for funding support for farmers, children, firefighters. Tell us just briefly about the specifics of that. You know, fires, wildfires are a, a huge plague all across the West, and we have them burning now in Washington State. And our firefighters don't have the equipment they need, and so this was a way to get more money for the equipment they need to fight fires. In addition, in the NDAA, um, I asked for a study of there's there's a way that you can get equipment from the uh, Department of Defense to firefighters. And I wanted an analysis of that to make sure that that equipment is going where it is most needed, not just where you have the savviest people in the department to get it. Because right now, um, that's how it's happening. We need to make sure we get that equipment for Washington, um, particularly in the 8th District. So before I let you go, and I know you absolutely do have to go, grassroots groups, including Indivisibles, are really wondering what they can do 
to be helping you out. We talked about this in the intro. What can people be doing to help your campaign? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, I would be incredibly grateful for your help. And I know that I would not be here today without your help. Um, we need to get the word out. We got it. You know, if you can put a, a sign on your lawn, please do. If you can talk, text, phone bank, all of those things are helpful. Um, just reach out to your neighbors, make sure they vote, make sure people know how to get their ballots in, where their drop boxes are, what their plan is to get it filled out, like all those things. Every single vote matters. We know that we've seen it so many elections and I'm just deeply grateful to all of you. What is your website info, info before we let you go? DrKimSchreier.com. Well, Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we are going to fight the good fight and do what it takes to send you back to Congress. Thank you, Stefan. I'm off to my 58th town hall, by the way. I was. That was the other question that I had. So you, uh, you, you managed to get that in there. You've done 58 town halls. You've beaten the record of your predecessor by 58. How about that? <laughs> it's good to stay in touch with my constituents. All right, Stefan, I will come back. Okay, I would terrific. love to have more conversation. Thank All you, right. Dr. Schreier. It's good to see you. Thanks. Great to see you. Bye. Thank you again to Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Jen Carter, Paula Harper Christensen, and Janice Cox. Thanks also to Catherine Fye-Sears. Special thanks to to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.